in your Bible today, the book of Mark. If you'll just remain standing with me and open your scriptures to Mark's gospel, chapter number 16. Mark's gospel, chapter 16. And the message is the resurrection, a second chance. The resurrection, a second chance. Boy, I tell you, that was wonderful. That blessed my soul. That's just great. And I'm sitting right in front of these trumpeters. Now, I think I enjoyed it. You know, it just kind of blew my head off there, but I tell you, it's wonderful. That's great. Praise the Lord. Did you all enjoy that as much as I did? I'll tell you, that was great. Amen. Six people really enjoyed it. <laughs> Mark chapter 16 in your Bible. And when the Sabbath, which would be Saturday, was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Siloam had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him, his body. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? When they looked, they saw the stone was already rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted or they were fearful. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But here's the text. Go your way and tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. And there shall you see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they were trembled, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were all afraid. Thank you, and you may be seated. The tomb in which the body of Jesus Christ had been placed was chiseled out of solid rock. I have been there a couple of times, and I'll never forget the scene. And it is a rock face on the side of a hill, and it is absolutely solid rock all the way through. And a large round stone had been carved out to cover the opening of the cave where his body was placed. And, and that was not unusual. They often did that, and they would put a track about this wide or wide enough for the stone. The stone would be sort of round. It wasn't completely round but it would make it easier to push. They'd put it in that track, which was also made of stone, and they would push the stone. Several men would be able to push it in, uh, in front of the cave through that little track that they had made. And so this is the situation when you go there and view the tomb of Christ even today. The body had been hurriedly placed there just before the beginning of Sabbath, so that would mean his body had been placed there if you view the traditional time, which I'm not sure about, but I'll use it for simplicity today. If you take the traditional time, 
and Christ would have been placed there uh, a, a few minutes before six o'clock on Friday evening. Remember the Jewish way of keeping time. The day began at 6 p.m. in the evening, in the evening in the morning, and they put the evening first. So Christ would have probably been buried about five o'clock or so on Friday afternoon, traditionally. Joseph of Arimathea was the man who owned the tomb. He would have been wealthy or he would not have been able to afford that kind of private tomb, an elaborate tomb carved out as it was. And he had been part of the burial party also when they came there late on Friday afternoon. And he, along with his friend Joseph, or Nicodemus rather, and several ladies, several women that were disciples of Christ, they also followed him and were present. The Bible says they took about a hundred pounds of aloes and various elements they put on bodies in those days. And so they would have laid his body there on a slab that's in that tomb to this day, a slab of rock, part of the rock formation. And they would have literally just covered the body with this paste that they made. And apparently they had not been able to finish because they had, uh, the time had run out on them and it was now approaching the Sabbath at six o'clock. And so they had left and they hoped to come back and somehow to have enough manpower to move the stone and go in and finish the burial preparation on his body. The tomb had been sealed by order of, of Pilate himself. And a guard had been posted somewhere between six, and 10 or 12 Roman soldiers stood by. The reason they had put the guard there unbelievably was that the Jewish leaders had heard him say that I'm gonna rise again. Interesting, isn't it, that his disciples all fled, <laughs> but that the, that the uh, religious leaders of the day who had him crucified, they were the ones who wanted to make sure the disciples didn't steal that body. And so uh, they posted the guard, which would have meant a Roman seal on it, which would have meant death to anybody who would have violated that order. When the party got there that morning, these three women, their names are given here. Chapter 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, all longtime followers of the Lord. When they got there, the stone was already rolled away. They didn't have to worry about how they would gain entrance into the tomb. Not only was the stone rolled aside, but they looked inside and the body was missing. There was no body. There were the linen clothes, and they were in position just like a body, probably still wrapped, and like a cocoon in which his body had been placed. The napkin that had been around his head, one of the other gospels said, had been neatly folded and placed there. And inside there was a young man, a young man in appearance. He was really an angel. And the angelic figure told them, well, he's not here. He's risen. And perhaps a moment ensued before he added, now go tell his disciples and Peter that he wants to meet them in Galilee. So they need to go on and make the trip up to Galilee. It's probably 30, 40, 50 miles. 
Go ahead and make the trip up to Galilee and Christ will meet you there. Mark doesn't record this, but the Gospel of John does in chapter 20. You need not turn there. But in John chapter 20, it says that Mary ran then. You can imagine the excitement, the thrill, even the tiny possibility that he might really be alive. Maybe it hadn't completely dawned on her yet. But boy, she's running, the Bible emphasizes. And she goes and tells Peter and John, the two leaders among the disciples. And she says to them, I saw the tomb. It's empty. The angel said, he wants you fellows to go up to Galilee. He's going to meet you there. And the angel said, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter, for some reason, he singled you out. And he called your name and he said, he wanted to meet you up there in Galilee. And so today, with me, number one, if you're taking notes, the two words that mean a second chance. The two words that mean a second chance. What do you think they are? Well, the two words are, and Peter, and Peter. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he will meet them up there. Now, to understand the significance of that, we go backward in our Bible, Mark chapter 14. And let's look at the scripture there and we'll understand just how important those words were to Peter that day. Mark chapter 14 and verse number 27. And Jesus said unto them, and he's having, he's having the Lord's Supper and the Passover with his disciples. And in Mark 14, 27, Jesus said unto them, all of you are going to be offended because of me tonight. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. See, he's already told them he's going to meet them there. And Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet I will not be offended, Lord. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you, that this day, even in this very night before the cock, the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he spake the more vehemently, referring to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, if I should die with you, I will not deny you in any wise. And then all the other disciples chimed in. Likewise also said they all. And so Peter here says, it doesn't matter whatever happens to you. I will never deny you. I will never let you down. I'll never fail you, Lord Jesus. Now go to verse 50. And in verse 50, Jesus is arrested and said, but they all forsook him. And they fled. Every last one of them. But Peter had been the one who was so vehement. He was so authoritative about this. It doesn't matter what's going to happen, Lord. I'll never leave you. I'll never let you down, he said. And let's see what happens. Chapter 14 and verse number 66 now, as you're following with me in the scripture. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, in the basement of the palace where Jesus was being tried, 
there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, and thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it, saying, I know not, neither understand I what you say. And he went out on the porch, and the cock crew, number one. The maid saw him again, and she began to say to them that stood by a fire they had made, this is one of them, and she pointed to Peter. And he denied it again, number two. A little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and your speech betrayeth you. You have the same Galilean accent he has. And he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak the third time and the second time then the cock crew. And he called to mind the words that Jesus had said, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought thereon, he wept. So now you understand the significance of those two words, don't you? The angel said, tell him to go up to Galilee. The Lord is going to meet you. Tell the disciples, all of them, to go. And Peter, the emphasis is upon him. Now, a few hours after Peter denied the Lord here three times, Jesus was dead. Just a matter of hours, the trial and then the crucifixion. Nine o'clock the next morning, the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross. And you know what Peter was somewhere in Jerusalem hiding and thinking? He was thinking this thought. A dead Christ means I can never get right with him. Oh, how I regret. Oh, how I would love to go and ask his forgiveness for betraying him, for denying him. After I was so loud in proclaiming that I'll never deny you, Lord. But you know, he's dead and I can't make it right. Boy, that's one of the toughest things in life. To lose somebody that you really loved, that you have done wrong and you've offended, and you can't make it right because they're dead. What a tragic situation he found himself in. And so when Mary runs and tells him and John, look, he's alive. The tomb is empty. We saw the clothes. An angel, a man was there, and he told us, Go and tell all the disciples. He wants to meet them up in, up in Galilee, but especially tell Peter. I want him to know because he's the one who failed me so bad. I want him to understand he's got a second chance now that there'll be hope for him. Number two, let me show you the key factor in getting a second chance with the Lord. The key factor is a deep and profound repentance. We define repentance, the definition of repentance as used in the scripture is a change of mind. And we usually say it's a change of mind in three specific ways. It's a change of mind about your sin. It's a change of mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it is turning from going away from Christ to going to Christ. So it's a change of mind about my sin. I recognize I have sinned. I need grace. I can't bargain with God. I have no basis to bargain with God. I have sinned. I'm going to turn from my sin, and I'm going to turn to the Savior. And then it's a change of mind about yourself. I realize I really cannot do this on my own. If God does not give me grace and mercy and extend to me the ability and the strength to do so, I have no strength of my own. I have to depend fully and completely and totally upon him. That's repentance. A change of mind about your sin, yourself, and about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the key factor. It's the key, one of the key factors in salvation, by the way. A lot of people have prayed a little prayer somewhere, but it didn't make much difference in their life. But when people genuinely repent, they change their mind about their sin, their self, and the Savior, and then they receive Christ as their Savior, I'm going to tell you there'll be transformation in their life at that point. And so, look with me in verse 72. Again, we have already read it, but the last phrase. When he thought thereon, when he thought about what had happened, Oh, it broke his heart, and he wept. In the book of Matthew, it even, it even gives one other word that makes it very, very powerful. It says that he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. It's one thing to sin and not care about it, but, uh, boy, when you really repent, you know, you recognize the enormity of your action. And he wept bitterly. You know, this lets me know that he was a true believer. You see, a Christian can sin. There's not a single sin that a Christian cannot commit other than what we call the unpardonable sin. Other than that, a Christian can commit any sin that any unsaved person can commit. But here's the difference. You'll find out, and this will help you with your salvation. A believer can sin, but he cannot sin and enjoy it, and he cannot sin and ignore it. He can't go on and on and on and on in his, his or her sin. If you're truly saved, boy, the Holy Spirit will rise up in you and convict you of that sin as he did Peter, and you won't be able to ignore it. You have to deal with it if you truly are one of the Lord's sheep. And so Peter went out and um, he wept bitterly, the scripture said. And so the angel had said, tell his disciples and Peter, those two words. The Lord wants to meet him up in Galilee. Well, does the Bible say anything about that meeting? Not really directly, but it surely implies it. Will you turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And though it doesn't give a, it doesn't say, now this is what happened at their meeting in Galilee. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it certainly gives us a hint of that meeting that they had. Here's a hint of it. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read, because it's Resurrection Day, I want to read chapter 15, and I want to start verse 1. And I hope you have your Bible. Share it with somebody if they don't have one next to you. And I want us to look very carefully at this because this is a very special scripture. In verse 1, Moreover, brethren, the apostle Paul writes, 
I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you and which you received. Now, hold on a minute. Look up here at me. I want you to get this. Paul is making a very, very important statement here. What is he saying? I want to declare unto you the gospel. This is the most succinct, specific definition of the essence of the gospel of Christ there is in all the Bible. Mark it in your Bible so you can find it again if you haven't already done so. But this is the place in the Bible where the gospel is declared so specifically, so implicitly, so directly in every, every adjective I can put on it. This is the place where the Bible spells out the gospel. Paul says, I'm going to declare to you the gospel, the good news. He said, I preached it and you received it and you stand in it and you're saved by it. Yes, amen, we're saved by the gospel of Christ. Note that. Now, I was talking to somebody just this week and the person was really struggling with their salvation. That person, when they walked in, I began to talk to them. I said in my, to myself, I believe this person is truly a Christian, but they're up and down in their feelings because they don't have good assurance of their salvation. And so I began to talk to them. And this person said words like this to me. Are you telling me I don't have to have a feeling to be saved? Are you telling me I don't have to feel anything to be a Christian? And I said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Where in the Bible do you find that we're saved by our feelings? Where in the Bible do you find that uh, your feelings are the true measurement of your faith? I said, no. I'm telling you, you don't have to have some sort of spiritual feeling, whatever that means. That would be so subjective, we could never define it anyhow. Well, what do I have to have? You have to have not a, not a feeling. You have to have faith. You have to have faith but your faith has to be specific. It's not general faith. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's a specific faith directed at a specific set of facts. And so you believe the facts and you put your faith in the facts and then the feeling may or may not follow. Well, what are the facts? They're right here. This is what it takes to be a Christian. This is what you know Peter had already now come to faith in. And so in verse three, Paul said, I delivered to you, first of all, that how that Christ died for our sins. That's fact number one. He died according to the scriptures in, in accordance with all of the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Secondly, that he was buried. The burial is a very, very important part of the gospel. Why is the burial important? Because three days in a tomb prove he was dead. You don't, you're not buried for three days and still in some sort of swoon or unconscious state. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried in that tomb. A proof and a powerful evidence that he was in fact as my old daddy said, graveyard dead. 
I don't know how graveyard dead is, but it means you're really dead, dead, doesn't it? And that's exactly what is happening here in this text. And then the third part of the gospel is he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. He fulfilled the prophecies there. But the gospel four facts to me, all of that's true, but verse number four, five gives us the fourth fact. He was seen. He was seen. What is the gospel, the good news that I'm asking you if you never trusted Christ to believe this morning? Christ died for your sins. He took your place. He was your substitute. He bore every sin you have ever committed and ever will commit upon his shoulders as he hung on the cross. He was buried to absolutely categorically demonstrate that he was dead. And then the Lord raised him from the, from the dead. He was, he died, he was buried, he arose again, but hold on, he was seen. Verse number five. And if you'll go down through the text, look at verse six. He was seen of above 500 brethren at one time. And the greater part of them are still present, Paul said, in other words, over 500 people had eyewitness, or would give eyewitness testimony to the fact that Christ was a living being that were still alive on the earth. Now that's pretty irrefutable evidence, is it not? Over 500 eyewitnesses come and say, I saw him. How many witnesses does it take to prove a fact in a court of law? Two, three, four. Well, we got 500 here. 500 witnesses said he died, he resurrected. I saw him after his, after his resurrection. So we have all this right here, this clear definition of the gospel and this listing of eyewitnesses. Now, here's the hint of the meeting that the angel had told them would happen in Galilee. In verse number five, he was seen of Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. He was seen of Peter. And so there's a hint there that that meeting between Jesus and Peter took place up there in Galilee. And I can only imagine that meeting. I can only imagine that meeting. I can imagine how when Jesus was standing somewhere in those Galilean hills that Peter walked up to him. His hands were sweating. He was trembling. How is he going to react? Jesus stands there and looks at him. And Peter's eyes drop. He cannot even look into his face. The guilt is overwhelming him. And he said, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, please, I messed up. I've messed up so badly. In front of all that crowd of people, I said, I don't even know him three times. Lord, I cursed. I took the name of God trying to convince those people I was telling them the truth. Oh, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me? And now he's down on his knees. 
The Bible doesn't say this. This is my imagination. But I've studied Jesus for a long time, so I think it could have happened like this. I think Jesus probably said, Peter, stand up. You don't need to grovel on the ground. Stand up. Maybe the Lord put both hands on his shoulders. Peter, don't drop your eyes. Look straight into mine. I want to tell you something, Peter. I know you're sinned. I know you've messed up, son. I know you denied me. I know you're disappointed in yourself. But Peter, that's what the cross is about. I died there. I shed every drop of my blood. I did it because I love you, son. And there's nothing you can do that'll make me love you less. And there's nothing you can do that'll make me love you more. You're forgiven. Now go and serve me. And maybe you're here today, you've sinned. Whether you're saved or whether you're lost, whether you've never been saved or you are a child of God, but you've just messed up really royally. If you're like that here today, my friend, maybe your conscience is just crying out as you sit there in that pew listening to me right now. I want to tell you, Easter is a second chance. It's a second chance. God loves you. You haven't gone over some line that you've imagined that you cannot be saved. And today, the Holy Spirit is convicting you to draw you back to the Savior. The last point I want to make real quickly is I want you to see the transforming power of Christ after this. Number one, two words that mean a second chance. And Peter. Tell his disciples, and Peter, that I want to meet him. And the meeting happened, and the key factor was Jesus said, I forgive you because you've repented. You've demonstrated a change of mind and heart about your sin and about yourself and about me. And thirdly, I want you to notice the transforming power of that meeting. You see, from that time of that meeting, this proud, brash, arrogant, first to speak and pop off about everything, this guy that always had his foot in his mouth, Peter is a changed man. He's a transformed person. He's different in every respect. And my mind goes to a passage in John chapter 21. I won't look it up with you this morning. But in John chapter 21, there's a breakfast on the beach. A breakfast on the beach. And Jesus is there. They've cooked some fish and there's some honeycomb and some other things that they're eating. And they eat together there's that fellowship now is restored. They enjoy being together. And then the Lord says, Peter, come over here. I want to talk to you a minute. Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Okay, then I want you to feed my lambs. And then a few moments later, Peter, I want to ask you again, do you love me? Do you really love me? Well, yes, I do, Lord. I want you to feed my 
sheep. Okay, Lord, I will. Peter, third time. Do you love me? And Peter's now a little exasperated. There's a little of that old man still in him. <laughs> he says, yes, Lord. Why do you keep on saying that to me? I've told you, yes, Lord, I love you. And Peter said, I want you to go feed my sheep. I want you to serve me. And what was the significance of that breakfast meeting? It was the fact that he denied Jesus three times in public. Now, three times in another public meeting, he affirms his love for Christ. He's restored. He's restored. Six weeks pass, and it's Pentecost, another feast of the Jews, and there's a big crowd gathered on a street corner in Jerusalem. And I walk up and I say, who is the man preaching? And as I get closer, I see he's, he's the redhead. Tradition says he, Peter was redheaded. And he's preaching his heart out, and he's telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read his entire sermon in Acts chapter two. And you know what the sermon is about? It's about the gospel. Christ died. He was buried. He rose again. And there's a lot of eyewitnesses here that we saw him. And if you'll trust him, you can, he will become your savior. He'll forgive you of your sins. And then a few months go by and the Christian faith is growing so rapidly and now the authorities began to act and persecution begins to come again. And the persecution becomes acute and they begin to arrest people for preaching. Who do you think they arrest in Acts chapter four? Peter. And they arrest him again and there's a whole sequence of arrest of Peter going to jail for the faith that he preached. And then the Christians began to scatter. They go over the whole world Peter ends up in Babylon where he founds a church. He talks about it in his epistles later on. And then the Romans come for him. And they arrest him. And they take him out to crucify him. And do you know what he says? Hold on. Could I be crucified with my feet in the air and my head down? Well, why do you request that? I request it because my Lord was crucified with his head up. I'm not worthy to even die like he died. And they said, well, okay. And reliable Christian history says he was crucified with the beams of the cross in the ground and his feet in the air. Who is sitting here today? You need a second chance. You've sinned. You've denied the Lord. You've rejected him. Or maybe you've just ignored him and just left him out of your life. It's easy to do. Well, it begins with repentance. You see, listen to me. A second chance is not automatic. A second chance is not automatic. A second chance depends upon a sincere heart repentance more than anything else. Not everybody does that. A lot of people want to be forgiven, but they don't want to repent. You remember a fellow named Judas? Peter was not the only one who betrayed him that night. 
Judas betrayed him. And the Bible even says Judas repented. Did you know that? It says that Judas repented, but he didn't repent to God. He repented to the priest. And the guilt was so overwhelming, he went out and took his own life. And then I think of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus. And Jesus gave him the truth about himself. And here's how the Bible says he reacted to the message of Jesus. He went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. See, he didn't get a second chance because there was no repentance. And then there was Pilate who over and over said, well, this man is innocent. Why do y'all want to crucify him? And he came in and hypocritically and symbolically washed his hands in a basin of water and said, my hands are clean. I don't have, want anything to do with the death of this innocent man. But he didn't repent. He didn't repent. And Christian history says that Rome transferred him to another office in Spain. And one day the guilt was so heavy, he took his life. Somebody wrote a poem about it. It's called The Land of Beginning Again. I wish there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all of our mistakes and heartaches and all of our selfish greed could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. I wish there was a place called the land of beginning again, don't we all? Don't we all have some regrets, but especially those who don't follow the Lord. Well, I want to tell you today, there is a place called the land of beginning again, and we call it the cross. Amen. The place where everybody can have a second and a third chance. The place of grace, the place of mercy, the place of absolute acceptance by the God of heaven who made you and who created you. Now that justice has been satisfied at the cross, now that the price has been paid, now that every sin has been, uh, the payment for every sin has been required, this Easter represents the fact that there is a land of beginning again, and it's called the cross of Jesus Christ. Go tell his disciples and Peter that I want to meet him. You came today. Put your name in that blank. Go tell his disciples and write your name there. What's your name? Put your name there. Go tell his disciples and your name. Daddy wants to meet you. He wants to save you if you're not saved. He wants to welcome you home if you've been away from him. The land of beginning again. Easter, the second chance. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.